Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Trinity is what I love to study the most, and it's been that way since I became a Christian. One of the first things I, I people I came in contact with was the Jehovah's Witness. And I almost went to their church, but the Lord used some rather providential circumstances to lead me to another Orthodox church. And uh, the big thing was about the deity of Christ. And I remember they were explaining to me something about God, Jesus not being God. And I got this book and I read it and it said something about the deity of Christ. And I had to ask my dad, what does the word deity mean? I had no idea what the word deity meant. That's how ignorant I was. But then. I picked up a book by uh, C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. It's one of the first books I ever read. Somebody just miraculously gave it to me. I had no idea where it came from. And I started reading it and it started describing uh, God as this triune God. And it gave a description of the relation between the Son and the Father, of uh, the Father being a book and the Son being on top of that book. And those books being like that from out, for all of eternity, and it just it completely fascinated me. And it gave me a, a desire and a love of the idea of, of what it means for God to be a trinity. And, and over that time, it, it's got to be where I, I can't imagine worshiping a, a monad God like um, uh, the cult worship or the Unitarians worship or the Muslims worship. The idea of God being a trinity to me is one of the fundamentals of my faith, and I can't imagine worshiping another God other than a God who defines himself as a triune God. It has so uh, many implications in our salvation, in our personal life, and not only that, but it's just such a, a deep, rich subject to study and read about that it, it's a lifetime uh, project. In fact, th- these three lessons I'm doing are actually uh, three parts of an 11 series, 11 uh, message sermon, or not sermon, 11 Sunday schools that I gave uh, back in like 2010 on just the topic of the Trinity. It, it, it's, and that's not even getting to the modern controversies, just the first five centuries of what we learned, what we know about the Trinity. So personally, I, I love the Trinity. It, it's an amazing doctrine. It, it amazes me uh, and it encourages me to study it and, and to worship such a God as a triune God. Now the launching point to this study is going to be a definition of the Trinity given in paragraph three of chapter two of the London Baptist Confession. What I'll do is a lot of words here, but I just want to read it to kind of give you an idea of what our forefathers said about the Trinity. It's probably one of the most mature, uh, insightful things that I've ever read on a Trinity is from the London Baptist Confession. It says this, and just read along with me, don't worry if it's, you know, words too complicated, just to get the idea of what they're talking about here. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided into nature or being and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, 
which doctrines of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. That last statement is the most amazing. You may not understand anything that's said there, but that last line there, the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. That's what I hope to show you, not just what the Trinity is, but how important the Trinity actually is to our faith. Now, again, a lot of information here, a lot of words there, a lot of concepts that we're, we'll work through that as we go through the lessons in the next couple of weeks. But just notice how it starts. In this divine and infinite being. Now, what you have, notice it says this. Where does the this come from? Well, they've already spent two paragraphs defining who God is in his essence, who God is at one, in, in, his, in his oneness, in his substance. And so they're saying that this divine infinite being, and then they're describing now how this being is distributed or shared by three different, we'll use the word entities right now. And what you have studied so far about God, that you've learned about some of his attributes, his uh, incommunicable attributes, communicable. Uh, you've learned part about his love, about his infinity, and there's a whole slew of these that we study. But you've studied those things, so you've learned basically the divine essence or the infinite being of God in that study. And that's the unity of God. Now we're going to look at is how God exists in a plurality, not just a unity or a mono, but an actual plurality. Again, any questions or comments? We've got a lot of time for discussion here today, so feel free to, to interrupt and ask questions. So in this divine being, it is pretty much just summarizes what we've studied so far. The second paragraph of the confession uh, examines God's relation to his creation. And there are five points to this. God, first of all, is he's self-sufficient. Uh, he's depending on nothing. He's the source of all life. Uh, God exercises sovereign dominion over his creation. He does whatever he wants to do with it. There's a destiny and purpose to creation that is in his hands. Uh, he exercises sovereign dominion over his creation. It is the third thing the confession says. Uh, there's also a perfect sanctity in all of God's dealings with his creation. He's perfectly holy in everything that he does and perfectly right and righteous in all of his acts and all of his relationships to his creatures. And then finally, there's intrinsic claims that God puts upon his creatures. All sentient beings have duties to perform to this God that he has specified that no man or no being shall be removed from. He demands worship, service, obedience, and whatever else he pleases. That is his relationship, this divine being, to his creation. Um, so again, this is God in his unity. Uh, what the second paragraph actually says is, yeah, this right here, this is sort of what you're studying right now. This is that one phrase, in this divine infinite being, can be shown in a diagram like this, the divine attributes. You've got the uh, incommunicable ones, infinity, eternal, immutable, self-sufficient, uh, imminent, omnipresent, um, uh, the communicable attributes, ones he can actually share with his creatures. He's love, mercy, holiness, goodness, just, and wise. So these are the attributes uh, that God possesses in his essence and what makes, it makes him who he is, the God of all creation. Now, if you are a Muslim or a Unitarian, you can stop right here. Well, that's God. That's him. You can explain deeper into these things. You can debate about what, what ones should be, what one should be. But you really would never go beyond looking at this picture right here. Whatever attributes are there, you would never leave that. That would be your study of the Godhead. But the scripture says much, much more about God than just his unity. It speaks as well about his plurality. 
Okay, what our, the confession says, in this divine being, that infinite being, there are three subsistences. So it's not just one God, there's three subsistences. Who knows what the word subsistence means? Anybody ever hear that word before? Subsistence, there are three subsistences. It's not a word you heard a lot. I, I never heard of it until I started studying the, the London Baptist Confession. Even the um, Westminster Confession doesn't use this term. It uses another one that, that we'll see in a little bit. But there are these three different subsistences. Um, when you look at Judaism, it, it is a monotheistic religion. Uh, there's not much um, in early Judaism that they agreed on, but one thing they did agree on, that God was one. He was a unity. There was no division among the Godhead. And the early church affirmed this. But as they looked at, at the new scriptures that they had and looked at what Christ said, they began to notice that there was not just one being that possessed these attributes and, and did the works of God, but, but there were more of them. There seemed to be other people, other entities, beings that claimed to be God and that acted very much like God would act if he were God. And they believe that if you spoke, if you did the works of God, that there are certain works that only God could do. And anybody that did those works was making a claim to be God himself. So they, they saw these other entities come, and we know who they are, they're Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who acted like God and spoke like God, so they had to sort of think beyond this monotheism to something else, or something greater, something more complex than just a, a single monad. They had to wrestle with how to describe these different beings in their relationship to one another. They couldn't just make three gods. They knew there was, that wasn't the case. There was one God from what the Old Testament taught and the New, but how do they describe these different entities and their relationships? And until this time, uh, they, they, they worshiped Jesus as God. If you read the early writings in the second, third century, they worshiped Jesus. They called him God. Uh, some, to some degree with the Holy Spirit, not as much, but you find it in the early writings after the apostles speaking of the Spirit is God or in ways that only God could be spoken of. Uh, they had no problem with it. it yeah, Jesus is God. Uh, the Father is God. The Spirit's God. Uh, Jesus creates. The Father creates. The Spirit creates. Uh, the Spirit gives life. Jesus gives life to the Father. They had no problem whatsoever speaking of all three members of what we call the Trinity. This is before the word Trinity even came about. Speaking of them as if each of them were God. And it wasn't until the Arian controversy in the 3rd and 4th century that they began to consider in greater detail what these distinctions in the Godhead really were. Okay, if Jesus is God and the Father's God and the Spirit's God, how do we define them? Is there three gods? And again, they had to avoid three errors in doing this. The first is what we call tritheism, where they believed there was three separate gods. And the second one was what we call Sabellianism or uh, uh, what is it? Modalism, where there's one God, but just three different faces to that God. He, he manifests himself in three different ways. No, these were, were three distinct things, persons, people that display these attributes. Not one just simply uh, taking the personality of another or the face of another. They were three distinct things. So how did they do this? What did they come up with? Well, what our confession says is this. There's this divine infinite being and there's the essence, and these three separate things they define as what we call hypostasis. And it's just a word basically for nature or for division. Uh, when it speaks of Christ as the, um, the exact representation of his nature, it speaks of this term hypostasis, that's the term it used. So there, there's one infinite being of God that possesses the attributes, and that 
being or that essence or nature is shared by three different hypostases. Now, we haven't named these things yet. We know what they are, but we're just kind of thinking through the reasoning of the church here as they came up with these things. Now, the problem is the early um, foundation of this was laid in the Greek church, uh, Antioch and places like that, Alexandria. Uh, Later, that church went to the uh, Eastern Orthodox side of Christianity, and it, you were left with the Latin version of this. And the Latin version, they, the word hypostasis, uh, is the word subsistence. So that's where the confession gets the word subsistence, simply the Latin idea of a hypostasis, of, of a nature. So this divine and infinite being, in him there are, in him there are three subsistences, there's three divisions. These three entities. Now, what do we know them as? Well, we know them as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that was sort of the reasoning that the church went through in trying to figure out what these divisions were. Uh, how, they, how, how do we describe them and explain them? There's one essence, one being, and there are three entities or subsistences or hypostases that share these attributes. Any questions or comments before we move on? Is that also called the hypostatic union? No, I was going to mention that too. Hypostasis uh, is a general term for nature. Uh, for, okay. for some reason, the Greeks found it useful to describe these divisions in the Godhead. Um, so when we talk about the hypostatic union, we're saying that Christ, his person, was the combination of two distinct Natures, hypostasis is natures. Yeah, his humanity and his uh, deity. Yeah, I actually had it in my notes to mention that. So thank you for reminding. Skipped it. Thank you for reminding me. So yeah, hypostasis is just idea of nature. We use it all the time, um, especially in the theologically the hypostatic unit in reference to Christ's two natures. Two natures joined into one person. So. We're understanding now, we understand that God is a trinity, that there is one God consisting of three, in uh, one unified being, nature, essence, or substance, but yet within that God there are three separate things, we'll call them, that possess this essence that we define generically as subsistences, um, and, and we name them the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, now, later we'll define what these differences are. It's not just a name. There are real, legitimate differences. That's when the Trinity gets fascinating, is how are they really different? In what ways are they different? We know how they're united in this one essence. How do they differ from one another is a, a very difficult and very fascinating question, one that's very much debated today. Not so much a thousand years ago, but today it's very hotly debated. In other words, what is the difference between the Father and the Son, between the Father and the Holy Spirit, uh, between the Holy Spirit and the Son? Uh, are there just different in names, or are there actually real differences in them that we can distinguish? Um, now, you, how many have heard these words in using to describe the Trinity? Hypostasis or subsistence? Anybody heard them before? What's the word we normally use when we describe these differences? What's the term we usually give? Starts with a P. 
personalities? Persons, yeah, persons. We use the word persons. Yeah, that's typically what we use. And even the Westminster Catechism, it says three persons. It doesn't use the word subsistence. It uses the word persons. And there's a lot of debate among the you know the upper echelon of theologians whether that's a legitimate term or not. And the argument is well. It brings a creatureliness into the Trinity. Uh, we don't want to uh, lower the, these subsistences to simply persons. And th there's a point to that. But, but when you think of persons, what do you think of? You think of relationships, right? And that's what these members have among each other. The most important aspect of these three beings here, or these entities, is their relationship to one another. And we'll see more of that. So personality, it, it does give the idea of relationship, which subsistence really doesn't. It's just kind of out there, where this shows more of their relationship to one another. And now, as long as we don't get the idea that what, what differentiates them is personality, that well, their father has one type of personality. He's a fun, uh, outgoing guy. The son has another personality. He's kind of sober and, and very uh, serious, and the spirit has a third personality. It's not personality traits that separate them. It's relationship that they have among each other. So as long as we, we, we keep any sense of creatureliness out of it, uh, and defining the relationships as personalities, the word person is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, so to summarize, um, subsistence is probably, again, a more accurate term because it does not allow for any creaturely limitations, but persons is obviously acceptable. Um, so what our confession says here is this, that God, the God that we have described in paragraph one and two, or what you've learned the last four or five weeks with Justin, uh, is infinite and eternal, uh, and within the, there, him there are distinctions, there are three different entities that share the same essence, that share these same attributes, and we call these distinction subsistences, or we'll remember, um, we can also call them persons as well, and they are named Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, that's what we know right now, where we are. Now, um, any questions before we move on? Most of this is pretty standard to you guys. You probably, maybe the idea of subsistence is new to you, but this is pretty much what we understand about the Trinity. Now, the, the question is, is how, you know, you give somebody a Bible, get a new believer, and, and sit down with the Bible and tell them, you know, teach me what you learned about God in here. You think they're going to come up with something like this? They're going to come up with this idea of the Trinity? And, and probably not. Uh, this was hashed out, as we'll see in a couple weeks, over 500 years of church history. This was hammered out. And uh, it took um, heresies, it took controversies, it took wars, it took uh, uh, political exiles for this to be hashed out the way it is. But what made the church, to try to get an idea of why I came about it, is think of a, a first century Christian, or the church in the first century. Uh, Jesus, maybe he's here, maybe he's not, maybe a little bit after the time of Christ. But um, you've got a Bible, and what was your Bible at that time? What it's called? The Old Testament. Right, and we call it the Septuagint, exactly. The Greek version of the Bible is what most uh, of the world used at that time. In fact, uh, Shine had a question last week that I remembered as I walked out the door about the Apocrypha. Remember, she asked me, and she's not here for me to explain, she asked me about where the Apocrypha came from, and I, I just drew a blank. Well, as soon as I walked out that door, I remembered it. But uh, So I thought I'd, I'd take where it came from. It was in the, in the Septuagint. There was different books in the Septuagint that uh, the church never really accepted. And when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, what we call the Vulgate, instead of the old Latin that he used at the time was basically a, a translation of the Septuagint into Latin. And it was a terrible, the old Latin version was an absolutely terrible version of the Bible. 
So Jerome wanted to make a new one called the Vulgate. But he wanted, what he wanted to do is he wanted to use the Greek instead of the Hebrew. Instead of the, uh, he wanted to use the Hebrew instead of the Greek. And, and most of the church was against him doing that. The fights that, that broke out over him using the Hebrew instead of the Greek just boggle the mind today that they would fight about something like that. But he noticed that in the Hebrew, there are a number of different books that, weren't in, that were in the Septuagint. They were in the Septuagint, but not the Hebrew Bible. So what he did after a lot of fighting and a lot of debating was he, he pulled those out of the Septuagint that were not in the Hebrew Bible and put them into one book and stuck them between the Old and the New Testament. And that's how we got the Apocrypha. It was a compromise. He wanted to throw them out. He didn't think they were worthy of being in the Scriptures. They were valuable and they were helpful, but he did not believe they were on par with the Scriptures, where a number of people, because they were part of the Septuagint, said, no, you need to keep them in. So he said, okay, tell you what I'll do. I'm going to pull them out. And I'm going to put them in one book so that people can see that they're separate from these other two books. And maybe that'll teach the church later down the road that they're not to be there. But th that's where they, they came from, out of, out of the Septuagint. Um, so you've got the, your Septuagint, you've got your Bible. And one thing that is indisputable about the Bible is that God is one. That there is one God. When you read the Old Testament, that there, there's no doubt in the world that there is one God and only one God. Uh, not only this, but the addition of any other God or giving your loyalty to another God is considered idolatry, one of the greatest sins that you could commit. Uh, there is one God who is the creator, Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread the earth out by myself. Notice the exclusivity. I did this alone. I did this by myself. There's no co-creator here working with God. There's one God who will swallow up death and sorrow, Isaiah 25, 8. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There's one God who is Savior, Isaiah 43, 7. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Uh, Isaiah 43, 21, there's no other gods but me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none other besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the earth, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's one God to be worshipped, and only one God, Isaiah 66, 24. And it shall be from the new moon to the new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Uh, there's one God who is the God of gods and Lord of lords, Deuteronomy 10, 17. And it shall be from the new moon to the new moon, and from Sabbath to... I'm sorry, I think I read that one already. There's one God who searches the heart, one God who is first and last, Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and accomplished it, summoning the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, I am the first, I am the last, I am he. Uh, there's one God who judges. Um, and so in their Bibles, as they looked, there's not just one God among many, there's one God who exclusively does these things, and he specifies, there's nobody else that does this but me. 
So not only is he one, but he's claiming exclusive acts that are his and only his. So when they read their Bibles, they found out there it's a God who is overwhelmingly monotheistic. One God to be worshipped, one creator, one redeemer, one savior, one judge, one giver of life, one king of kings, one who is first and last. There is one God and only one God. That, that's the, the booming sound that comes from the Old Testament. God is one. But then when you look at the New Testament, and as soon as you open it, you see that there's more to the story. Uh, we see it with the birth of Jesus, uh, when, when he's in the cradle, and remember when the Magi come. And keep in mind, Bethlehem was a very, very remote town. It was a, almost a village in the middle of nowhere. And uh, these real strange foreigners come, they show up. Remember, uh, Geneva and I, were with the kids, were traveling through, uh, we went to, from Reading, Pennsylvania, which is sort of a, a southeastern part of Pennsylvania, all the way up to the Finger Lakes in New York State, which is sort of northwestern part of the state. And we, we avoided all the highways and just drove straight up through western Pennsylvania, up through western New York, up to the Finger Lakes to visit my cousin's dairy farm. And we're going up these little back roads, and we come to a town, and we decide to stop and get a, a grinder or something at a little tiny shop on the side of the road, in a little town. And we walk in, and immediately every eye looks at us. And we weren't dressed weird, we were just normal. But people knew that we were not from that part of the town. And it was kind of a spectacle in that little tiny uh, restaurant. And like, I was a diner, I call it a diner. And uh, so the waitress came over, and kind of timid and, and shy with us, and finally got to talking to us. Where are you from? We're from Dallas. Dallas, you got, hey, they're from Dallas. There's this big commotion. These people are from Dallas. And people looked around, looking at us, what people from Dallas? Like they never seen anybody from Dallas, let alone from you know, another part of the world. So imagine this small town. A remote village where very few people came through that were not part of that town. And all of a sudden, these strangers show up. Pretty big robes, colorful robes, uh, foreigners. And, and what do they do as soon as they see this baby guided by a star? Imagine that. They, God brought them with a star over to us from all the way across the world. What do they do as soon as they see this baby? It says that they, they fall down and worship so imagine the parents of Jesus seeing that. These men come and fall down and they pull out all these gifts that, that are due a, a king, uh, gold, frankincense, myrrh, and, and just give it to this child. Imagine what went through their mind. Why are these men worshiping our child? And they may have known and understood, but it would have been an important part of the life of Christ. They were telling something about him that these men came from far away and worshiped this young, probably two-year-old child at the time. He lives in relative obscurity until he's 30 years old. We only have a few biographical details about the life of Christ until his ministry. But then in the beginning of his ministry, an incredible thing takes place um, that gives great insight into who this man Jesus really is. And, and it's the herald that comes before him. Remember what John the Baptist does when he cries out? Make the way straight in the desert. I mean, lift up the mountains, lower the valleys. And... Matthew says that this is a fulfillment of what, this John, what John the Baptist is doing. It's a fulfillment of this passage. And the passage is where? Where does this come from? Isaiah chapter 40. Remember how it starts. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Uh, call to them, uh, my people, that their warfare is over. Uh, that their iniquity is ended. Uh, God is coming to comfort his people and to bring them a real lasting comfort, both a ceasing of all warfare as well as the forgiveness of their sins. And to prepare them, he sends somebody out to announce his coming. He sends a herald out there. 
And, and his heralds goes out and he, he prepares the way for the Lord, it says. And he says, he, he goes out and he, he takes the desert, he smooths it over, he, he lowers the mountains, he raises the valley. And, and this is an image of when emperors traveled throughout the world, uh, they wanted a nice smooth path to go on. And very few roads at that time were very smooth. So road crews would actually go ahead and, and prepare the roads for a more comfortable ride for the emperor. And so he's saying this, you know, take not just a road, but take the mountains and, and cut them down. Uh, take the valleys and, and fill them up so this road is smooth, this massive highway uh, for the one who is coming. And then he tells this herald to get up on a high mountain. Okay, get up and, and proclaim this. Don't be afraid. Don't be shy. Get up and, and, and tell the people of Jerusalem what I want them to hear. And what is the message that this herald declares? Behold, here is your God. And what he's saying there is that God is going to come to his people. He's going to visit them. He's coming to do something for them. And as you read in Isaiah chapter 40, he's going to come to deliver his people. He's going to come to save them. So like a, a, a shepherd, he will gather his sheep. He will gather his, uh, in his arms the nursing lambs. He will care for the ewes. And he's going to save and deliver his people with his powerful arm. That is what this herald is to get up and proclaim to the people of Israel that your God is going to come and deliver you through an actual personal visitation. Yahweh, the Lord, is going to come to you. That's what Isaiah 40 says. And then you have John the Baptist preparing the way for this one. And who's the one who comes? It's Jesus. What does that say about Jesus? That he's the one coming. He's Jehovah. He's God. Nobody else could fulfill Isaiah 40 but God himself. And the text makes clear that John the Baptist, what he does is fulfilling what happens in Isaiah 40. When Jehovah Witnesses come to my house, I used to always get nervous about it. I'd go and I'd study all their passages and you know, show them what firstborn really meant and all the places where they distort the script. That's been days when I knew Jehovah Witness was coming just to, to, to answer them and to uh, counteract them. And what I do now is I just go to them, I say, okay, you know, I cut them off in their speech and say, let's look at the scripture. Read, I have them go through Isaiah 40 and ask them, who is it that's coming? And they say, Jehovah, Jehovah's coming. Then we go to Mark, probably the shortest account of this. And I say, who's coming in Mark? And they, they can't say. We go to Matthew, who's coming in Matthew? They can't say. They know who it is, but they can't say. And I tell them, if you can explain to me and they often go off on one of their tangents about, you know, uh, their little phrases they have to try to catch. I say, no, no, I want you to explain to me what this passage says. How can it be Jehovah here and Jesus here if Jesus is not Jehovah? You said it yourself that Isaiah 40 is Jehovah. Now, how can Jesus not be Jehovah? And they have no answer. And I say, okay, you're off. I stumped you. You haven't thought about this. Go home, study this, pray over this read this again and again, and come back next week and we'll sit down and you can explain to me who this is. And I've done that probably five or six times. I've never got anybody come back. It's undisputable. And the early church read this. They think, wow, this Jesus is coming for Jehovah. He is actually Lord. That's the only conclusion they could have come up with was that this Jesus was Jehovah himself. So what does that do to the unity of God? Because there's still a God that Jesus is praying to and talking to and, and acting as if it's really God and is his God. So now how do you explain Jesus coming into the scene here? 
So now you see it's sort of the dilemma that the first century church was in. Uh, there are other passages that, that speak directly of Jesus being God. The most famous one is John 1.1. 1, 1. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, He's also the creator. We saw in a passage in Isaiah where I am the only creator. There's no other creator besides me. Yet what does John say about Jesus? All things came into being through him. And apart from him was not one thing that came into being. Paul says in Colossians 6, For by him all things were created. That's him is Christ here both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So that overwhelmingly monotheistic Old Testament that you have says that Jesus created all these things. He has power over death. Revelation 1a, I am the living one. I was dead, behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hates. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Uh, he has the power to raise the dead, as Jesus does, something only ascribed to God in the Old Testament. Isaiah, uh, uh, John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself, I, me, I will raise them in the last day. A power previously attributed only to Jehovah, the Old Testament, now has been given, granted, possessed by this man, Jesus. Even the dead will hear his voice, he says. Do not marvel, for the hour is coming when those who are in their graves will hear his voice and come forth. He, like Jehovah, is called the first and the last, Revelation 2.8. The first and the last who is dead has come to life. Uh, remember how the demons reacted to Christ. Uh, they, they feared him. They, they lit. As soon as he spoke, they, they, no arguing, no fighting, no bickering. You say something, we do it. They may have pleaded for mercy or grace or, or, or another punishment, but whatever he said, whatever came out of his mouth, they obeyed him. In fact, remember how they marveled. Even the demons obeyed this guy. But what, what prophet in the Old Testament ever confronted a demon? None. Yet Jesus not only confronts them, he commands them and, and smacks them around like a, you'd smack a puppy with a rolled up newspaper. They, they obey him. Immediately, there's no hesitation. Now, who would do that? Who could do something like that? Well, obviously God himself, one who possessed authority over them to that degree. Uh, he's a savior. And when Mary names him, what is his name? Savior. We shall call him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, so linked are the works of Jesus united with the Father's that he says, whatever the Father does, I do. If I see the Father doing something, I go ahead and do it myself. Only a person equal to God would ever be able to do the works of God. And the people heard that and they, they marveled. Remember when he said, uh, I and the Father are one. We're united. We're one together. Uh, when he used the, 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 what we call the tetragrammation to refer to himself before Abraham was, I am. That's the word that God used to describe himself to Moses in the early parts of Exodus. He says, what shall I call you? Who shall I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am sent you. Jesus says the very same thing before Abraham was, I am. I'm that same person that you sent, that Moses, that was sent from Moses to the people of God. And what did the Jews say when they heard him say that? What did they do? 
they rightly picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God himself. So they've got this problem there. And it wasn't a problem to them, really. They just saw it and believed it and accepted it. You've got this monotheistic God in the Old Testament, and you've got this God the Father who very well fits in that idea of who God was in the Old Testament, but you've got this newcomer who is Jesus, making every claim to deity that God himself made in the Old Testament, not only doing what God did, not only having the same attributes, but doing the same works that God did. And then there's a third one. There's what? The Holy Spirit. Now, it's not as obvious as it is with, with, with Christ, but if you have one of the divine attributes, you can do one thing God can do. You can do anything he can do. God is so unique that if you possess one attribute that he has to the degree that God has, to the infinite degree that he has, then you pretty much have all of them. That's how unique and distinct God is. So they, they read their Bibles, and it came later in the church, uh, but it was there in the early part to some degree. Uh, they saw that there was this third one that they added to this group uh, called the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see this in a number of ways. One of the most uh, profound ways that they believed it meant he was God was the, the different formulas. Uh, where triadic formulas, we call them, where all three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are mentioned. Uh, what's the most famous one that we have of these? The baptism. What are we baptized into? The Father, Son, and a force? Father, Son, and a, a great angel? Who are we baptized into? We're baptized into the name, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. That, that to the early church was a strong indication that the Spirit was equal with these other two, with the Father and with the Son. We're baptized in his name just as much as we are of the Father and the Son. Puts them all at the same level. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul closes the epistle uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and reminds them uh, of the great Trinitarian source of salvation that is theirs. It is the Trinity that saves them. The grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit uniting us with God, with Christ, and, and bringing the salvation that we have to him. Uh, John Calvin said that in his, the way he outlined his institutes, uh, he spent the first two books uh, describing the great salvation that Christ brought us. All that Christ did, the redemption, justification, uh, the deliverance, all of that is described beautifully, particularly in book two. And in book three, he says, now, all of these things that we've learned about are separate from us. They're not ours. They're distinct from us until we are united to Christ by the Spirit. And once we, look, we have fellowship with Christ, all these blessings now flow to us through the Holy Spirit, through the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And he referenced this verse to describe that. Okay, the fellowship of the Spirit brings the gifts of Christ, the blessings of Christ, to the people of God. So there's, who can take the gifts that God gives and distribute it to a people? In my mind, only God could do that, yes. You know, you... The, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. It, what's the difference? He was, he was, you know, throughout the Old and New Testament. But what was that? What was the difference in the Pentecost? Difference in what, in what way? Though? The Holy Spirit came upon them in Pentecost. That's the main emphasis on the Holy Spirit coming. Right, right. Where you're saying, that, which I believe, but I'm not questioning that. It's like 
how is the Holy Spirit expressed in the in the past in the Old Testament and and it was very obvious at Pentecost. Right. He was expressed the same way, just not to a, the same degree as it was at Pentecost. And, and Pentecost also marked what we would call an eschatological change. It marked a change in redemptive history. Something new happened as a result of Christ's death that is marked out, I mean, clearly by what happened at Pentecost. And, and so that's sort of a reference to, okay, th and actually what it is was really the, the practical arrival of the New Testament in my mind, the New Covenant in my mind. Christ paid for it all. Uh, he, he, when he died on a cross, all that was accomplished. When he sat down at the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110, now what does he do when he gets there? Well, Acts 2, he sends the Spirit to his people. He now has the authority and that's what, that's what Peter's arguing there in Acts 2 in his sermon, is that, look, uh, Christ sat down. You know, you're, you're trying to figure out what all this stuff is, what all this spiritual activity is. I'm going to tell you what it is. Christ was crucified. You crucified him. He sat down at the right hand of God, and God gave him the gifts, the promise of the Spirit, and now he is pouring that Spirit out among you. And that, that sitting down, Peter says, made him both Lord and Christ. And remember that how the people, I, I preached this a couple, couple months ago, remember how the people responded when they heard that phrase, both Lord and Christ, you who, he who you crucified. They're petrified. They're, they're scared to death because now the one in Psalm 110, we've killed him basically, we've crucified him. And now he is, we realize he's Lord, he's that one in Psalm 10 is gonna come and destroy his people. So it was him receiving a gift from the Father, the Spirit, and then pouring that out upon mankind. Uh, so it marked, and he still does today, just not in the degree that he did. And as, as the gospel went out from Jerusalem, there are other manifestations of the Spirit. They, they speak, when it goes out to Samaria, there's another manifestation where the people speak in tongues and, and they say, wow, you know, what, what do we do with these Gentiles? Do we not baptize them because they have the Spirit too? Can we withhold water baptism from them? They're, they're part of us. That the Spirit was seen as, as bringing the church about in, okay. in a unique way. And one of the factors would be that the Gentiles would be included in that church. And that's what the Spirit is showing. Go out to Samaria, the despised Samarians, they get the Spirit. What is the conclusion? They're part of the church. Goes out to the Gentiles as well. Well, they're part of the church. So it was a sign that, yes, God is bringing his people, is forming his flock, okay. establishing his church in a unique way. New covenant church. Okay. Long answer to good question. So, <laughs> any other comments? Okay, so um, let's see. So again, the, these triadic formulas that are used throughout the scriptures. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 2. Uh, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now both these verbs here go with the choosing. How were we chosen? What is our election based on? Not to, We just think, well, the foreknowledge of God. God saw in the past and future and he elected us. No, that and the sanctifying work of the Spirit. We were chosen in to obey Christ Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So to encourage the Peter to open his letter, he reminds them of the Trinitarian nature of their faith, that you were chosen by God, his foreknowledge, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and by the sprinkling of the blood of peace. The Spirit is seen as a person, he speaks, he can be lied to, he grieves, he's resisted, uh, he's said to be eternal, he can search the heart. Uh, we, we saw earlier that only God searches the heart, so how can the Spirit be one who searches the heart unless he shares something of the divine nature? 
Um, he gives life, he sanctifies, he pours out the love of God upon the hearts of believers. How could somebody other than God himself, well, does he give little, little uh, packets of God's love that he sheds out to the people, gives to the people of God, or is it God's actual love that he sheds out upon the people? He possesses the love of God, so therefore he's able to shed that love abroad in the hearts. It is the real, true love of God that the Spirit gives because he possesses the real, true love of God because he is the true God. Uh, he gives life. Uh, he sanctifies, again, pours the love out in our hearts. Uh, Romans 8, 11, the most amazing verses about the Spirit. Is, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who raised Christ from the dead? Spirit. Paul opens up uh, the book of Romans with, the, with this phrase that um, the, uh, he was born of the flesh, son of David, uh, raised in power by the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the flesh, he was the son of David. But in his resurrection, he was brought up by the sanctifying spirit, declared son of God in power. The spirit did that. Yeah, but the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Who's going to raise us from the dead? The last days. The spirit's going to do that. The spirit that now dwells in you. And Paul will later say that if you don't have that spirit, then you are not raised from the dead. You will not be raised from the dead. That's how closely linked the Spirit is to our very resurrection. Now, I'm not going to go through these passages to try to, to prove the Trinity. I mean, this is not to prove the Trinity. Although I think I pretty give a good proof right here. It was not the purpose. It was just sort of to show you the dilemma that the early church faced. How do we explain our monotheism? in light of the, this new revelation. Now, there was, we'll see later, some evidence of, of a plurality of the Godhead in the Old Testament. Anybody know where, where that is, places we see that? Well, Genesis created the earth. It says, let us make man our earth. Us, exactly. The plural pronouns used at times where God refers to a group doing things that only he would do. I mean, God didn't you know, share creation with angels, so he's almost, there, there's a, a communication among the Godhead, it seems before he goes and does certain things in Genesis 1 exactly, right? And then the Spirit is there as well in um, hovering, brooding over the, the unformed creation, and it gives the impression that the Spirit is involved somehow in that work, molding it, shaping it. Uh, the Word is there. So the early fathers had no problem seeing that in their, their sort of spiritual interpretation, reading the Trinity into the creation of, of man in the world. But we have an indication of it by the use of those plural pronouns. And if, I've read many attempts to try to explain those things. Uh, a, a royal we, you know, God speaking as a king. Often kings will speak of a group of people. Uh, there's some a divine counsel that God is dreaming of or thinking of, and, and none of it works. God is speaking to himself as if there's another person there that he's talking to in those passages. The only way really to explain it. So they, they had to keep that unity, yet they saw three beings exhibiting the qualities of deity, uh, both their attributes and their works. And, and the first, the fruit of the uh, first 500 years of church history is pounding out what we saw up here earlier. This idea of, of one essence shared by three different subsistences, or the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like I said, this is a one part of a 11-part series that I did years ago, like 12 years ago, and uh, I need to figure out what, how to limit that to two more lessons. Anybody have anything that they're just burning to learn about the Trinity that I can, I can teach? Anything you always wondered about? Got 11 lessons, it's a lot of time. Okay, well, 
We'll uh, we'll pick up next week where we are. Is that a, no, a fly swatter? A, yeah. a weird way to ask a question. Okay. <laughs> any any questions or comments? I mean, isn't it great? I mean, just the Trinity it just boggles the mind. I was so excited to, to study this and to get up here and teach it and thinking, man, I thought I'd just give them one small, tiny sliver of the excitement that I have about the Trinity. If you don't have it already, then uh, I, I hope I've, I've done, done what the Lord called me to do today. It, it is an amazing thing that our God is a triune God. And you can imagine the, the wonder uh, of the church as they heard Jesus speak and as they read about him uh, centuries later in the New Testament to come to the realization. And that was like that for me. Like I said, I was had no idea that Jesus was God. And I learned that he was. And I remember the first time I read Hebrews chapter 1, I mean, it, I, I could, I almost wept. I, I could, I'd, I'd read a couple verses and I had to stop. I had to get up and, and just walk around the room. I'd come back, I'd read a couple more, I had to stop and just, I'd literally walk around the room for five or ten minutes just to, to catch my breath, to realize so clearly that he was God. I mean, read Hebrews 1, it's the greatest manifestation of the deity of Christ, in my mind, anywhere in the New Testament. And reading that for the first time, I mean, it, it literally took my breath away. And it still does. I wish it still did to the same degree, but it still just amazes me to read about the deity of Christ and how that fits into the Trinity. Hey, questions or comments? Yeah, yeah I, you're just reminding me of uh, the time that uh, Jesus sent out the disciples and they did all this healing and stuff like that, and they were really excited about that. And mm -hmm. he sent us... Holy Spirit out with them to do that healing. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll close in a word of prayer and we'll be uh, dismissed with time then. Not bad. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us. Thank you for the wonder uh, of the Trinity that you have revealed yourself to us, Father, in this way. We thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done, that all uh, of you is involved, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in, in saving us and, and sanctifying and protecting and preserving us. And we look forward to the day, Father, when Jesus himself prayed uh, that we would be one as you and, and Jesus were one. We long for that day, Father, to share that unity and that peace and that uh, fellowship with you that Christ shares with you, even though to a limited degree, Father, we long for that day, having a taste of it now. Uh, the first fruits of that fellowship now. We long for the day that it is complete. And we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.